attempt to apply into our lives. Lord, I pray that you would please help me to have a clear mind. Help me, Lord, to be able to say the things that you would have me to say. Lord, help this to be a time that we could not only learn the Bible, although if we just got to learn the Bible, that would be good enough. But Lord, help us to be able to apply it to our lives that we might uh, grow in our Christian walk with you. We love you, Father. In your precious name, I pray. Amen. Alright, well we're there in Isaiah chapter number 9, and we've been studying through the book of Isaiah on Sunday nights, and if you look at verse number 1, I want you to understand that chapter 9 is kind of, is a continuation of chapter number 8. If you look at verse 1, the Bible says, nevertheless, and that's a, a connecting to the previous chapter, and it begins to talk about this subject of the dimness and the darkness. Look at verse 1, it says, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. So, to get a little bit of the context, you have to, uh, let, let's just go back to chapter 8, and look at verse number 20, and we preached through chapter 8 last week, but let's just uh, look at a few of these verses just to give you the, to, to remind you what it is that God is talking about through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, the Bible says this, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now I want you to understand that he begins to talk about this subject of light and darkness, and in verse 20 he makes it very, very clear, that if someone speaks not according to this word, or not according to the word of God, the Bible. They are speaking not according to the word, because there is no light in them. Verse 21, And they shall pass through it, and uh, hardly be stead and hungry. And they shall come to pass, that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves, and curse their king and their God, and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth, and behold, notice, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. So the idea is that the judgment of God is coming upon these people and as his judgment comes they are going to be driven to darkness and there will be dimness of anguish and they will have no light because they don't speak according to this word. And verse 1 begins that idea, or, or continues that idea. Look at verse 1, he says, nevertheless. Now the word nevertheless means in spite of that. He says, in spite of the fact that if they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light. In spite of the fact that I'm going to bring judgment, I'm going to bring darkness, I'm going to bring dimness of anguish, I'm going to drive them to darkness. He says, in spite of that, uh, of, of the dimness, he says, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now I want you to remember these two names, okay? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are two tribes of the twelve tribes in the nation of Israel. And here's what you need to understand about these two tribes. These are the two most northern tribes in the nation of Israel. When you have the nation of Israel, you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And these two tribes are in that northern part. This area is what's uh, it's known as the area of Galilee. If you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that Jesus spent a lot of time in this area of Galilee in the northern part of the kingdom. The Bible says, nevertheless, in the, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, notice this, in Galilee of the nation. So this is, these are lands that are in Galilee, in that northern part of the nation, and they are by the sea. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, the first time I afflicted them, he said, there came a more grievous affliction to them. 
But he's saying this time it's not going to be like that. He says the next thing to come is not going to be a grievous affliction. Look at verse 2. He says the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. And here's what Isaiah is saying. Because you've got to understand, the, the, the nation of Israel, that northern kingdom of Israel, is going to be destroyed by a nation that will come from the north. And as that nation makes its way south into the kingdom of Israel, obviously the people that are going to hit the hardest and the people that are going to, that are going to take kind of the, 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 the big pounding of those initial battles will be these tribes of Naphtali and of Zebulun because they are in the northern kingdom. But what God is saying is, after this affliction, He says, after this punishment and after these things happen, these people are going to be in disarray, they're going to be in darkness, they're going to be in dimness, they're going to be destroyed, they're going to be in anguish. But God says, in all of that darkness, He said, will spring up light. And in this first uh, part here of, 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 the, of the chapter, uh, it, 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 I, I kind of divide it into three points for those of you that like to take notes. The point number one is this, God's, we see God's light in the midst of darkness. Because you need to understand this, Isaiah chapter 8, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2 is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. Now, keep your finger there in Isaiah 9. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. And if you're taking notes, uh, I would write next to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2. I would write this reference, Matthew chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through verses uh, 16. Because that is the fulfillment of this prophecy. If you're taking notes, if you'd like to write in your Bible, uh, I would do that if I were you. But go to Matthew chapter 4. Let's, let's look at the fulfillment of this prophecy. He said that Zebulon and Naphtali are going to be driven to darkness. But he said, in that darkness, light is going to spring up. Now notice, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13, the Bible says this, And leaving Nazareth, he, now that he is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast. You remember how it said about Zebulun and Naphtali that they were by the sea, the lands by the sea? He says, he went to dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtalim. Why did he go there? Why did Jesus go there? Verse 14, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region of shadow of death, light is sprung up. Now what was that light? What was that uh, great light and that light that was sprung up? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just real quickly, go with me to the book of 1 Peter. Towards the end of your Old Testament, you've got the last book, which is Revelation. And right before Revelation, you have uh, Jude, which is just one chapter. You have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which is small books. And then you got 1st and 2nd Peter. Go to 1st Peter chapter number 2. The Bible, and I'm not going to get into it a lot right now, but we're going to get into it a little bit more in, in the next point. Uh, but there's so many verses I could show you that show that Jesus is that light. He is the light of the world. But He has also called us to be a light of the world. And kind of we were talking about it this morning with the ministry of soul winning and reaching people with the gospel of Christ. But in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, 
The Bible says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him. Notice this, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, That ye should show forth the praises of Him, who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that is, that is the picture of the gospel being preached. And the idea is that there was this land that people would look at it and they would say, Oh, this was a land that God judged. And this was a land that God forsook. And this was a land that God, He, he drove them to darkness and He drove them to dimness. But He says, even in that darkness, light is sprung up. And He says, in that darkness, Jesus Christ went to preach the gospel. And then you and I, as a peculiar people, have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now in Isaiah chapter 9, that is not the only prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ or the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, look at verse 3. We saw number 1, that God's light in the midst of darkness. But I'd like you to see number 2, God's light in the midst of destruction. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 3, the Bible says this, Thou hast multiplied the nation. The idea there is that the nation has increased. It has grown. He says, Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. The joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. He's saying, look, people, people have this idea that joy comes when, when the harvest comes in. And the harvest for them would have been payday. You know, they worked all season to bring in a harvest. And when, when they bring in that harvest, they would have joy because they had money. He says, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. He says, they would have thought that they would have got joy based on the things they got. On the, uh, on, on the money that they had. But he said, you've increased the nation, but you've not increased the joy. And I would submit to you that true joy comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And no amount of money, no amount of possessions, no amount of nice clothing or things that you own can bring that joy. Verse 4 says, For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. He's talking about the fact that they have freedom because God brought them freedom. And uh, he talks about Midian. Remember uh, in the book of Judges when they were freed from the captivity of the Midianites. Verse 5. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying the nation has multiplied. He's saying the nation has increased. He says you have things and you have your harvest and you have your money. And you have those things because the, he has broken the yoke and the burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. As in the days of Midian. And he's saying, you have those things because God has allowed you to win in battle. Now notice verse 5, okay? He begins to describe the battlefield. He says, for every battle of the warrior is with confused noise. He said, if you were to go out in the midst of a battle, you would hear noise and it would be confused noise. People yelling and screaming and not really knowing what's happening or if they're winning or losing or what they're doing. He says, for every battle the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. He says, in a battle you would see people whose clothing are filled or it looks like they've been rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Now notice verse 6. He says, he says in that destruction, he says... You have liberty because I gave you judges like Gideon and like Samson and like these men that through battles and through arguing and through fighting brought you liberty and you've increased. He said, but your joy has not increased. And he says, your joy hasn't increased because you're missing something. And he says, let me explain to you what it is that you're missing. Look at verse 6. 
For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 is one of one of the many, there's lots of famous passages in the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 is a very famous verse in the book of Isaiah. It's often quoted during the Christmas season. And the Bible tells us here that God is given us a son. Now it's interesting, let me just point out a few things about this verse. The first thing is this, it's, 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 the, the wording is, is uh, interesting, because when someone has a child, you say, oh, they had a daughter, or they had a son. But Isaiah doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Mary's going to have a son. He doesn't say, Joseph is going to have a son. He says, for unto us, including himself, he says, a child is born. And unto us... A son is given. The idea there is that a father has given up a son for us. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called. And here are their names. And by the way, in case you don't know, this is about Jesus Christ. This child that will be born. We saw in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Just go there real quickly. Go back to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Remember this prophecy of Jesus Christ. And you got to remember about the book of Isaiah. Isaiah probably has the most prophecies of Jesus Christ of any of the prophets. And in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The Bible says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign... Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here, we're told that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. In Isaiah chapter 9, where he kind of continues talking about that son that the virgin would conceive. And he says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called. Notice the names of Jesus. These are his names. They're not just titles. This is what his name is. Wonderful. Counselor. And I I like these verses. The mighty God. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 is one of the clearest examples of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may be, you know, maybe I just said that and you thought, what does the word deity mean? The, The doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ is this, that Jesus is God. And the Bible is teaching us here in Isaiah chapter 9 that this child that would be born of a virgin, and we already cross-referenced it when we were in Isaiah chapter 7 with Matthew chapter 1 where it said the virgin shall uh, conceive and bear a son. And it said, and it, and it explains to us that it was Jesus. And it tells us that this child that is going to be born, he's not just going to be a normal child. He is going to be the mighty God. Now there are some religions and there are some quotes that say that Jesus was not God, He was a God. That Jesus became a God. And that you and I, if we lived a good life and we lived righteously, that we could become a God. But notice, the Bible doesn't say that He was a God. The Bible says that He was the mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Now keep your finger there in Isaiah chapter 9. Let me give you some verses in regards to the, the, the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. And Sunday nights and Wednesday nights are kind of our Bible study time, so... Let's study a little bit of doctrine together. 1 John chapter number 5, towards the end of your New Testament, you've got 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. So if you go to 1st John 
chapter 5, and look at verse number 7. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God. Now, I want you to remember, in Isaiah 96, it said that He was wonderful, He was counselor, He was the mighty God, and He was the everlasting Father. And today, many people will argue with us and say, well, Jesus isn't God, and then they'll also say this, Jesus isn't the Father. They'll say, well, how can Jesus be the Son of God and also be God the Father? Say, if you're the Son, then you can't be the Father. But here the Bible tells us, unto us a child is born, unto us a Son is given. So He's the Son. But His names are Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You say, do you believe that Jesus is God the Father and God the Son at the same time? You say, how can you believe that? Well, we believe that because we believe a doctrine called, and this doctrine is going by the wayside, but we believe in a doctrine called the Trinity. 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 7, the Bible says this. 1 John chapter number 5 and verse number 7, the Bible says, For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father... Now do you see how it says there, the Word? Okay? I'm going to prove to you in just a few moments that that's Jesus Christ. But I want to just, just for right now, just take my word for it, that that Word is Jesus Christ. But I'm going to prove it to you from Scripture here in a moment. But it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Now notice, and these three are one. Now look, I can't, I can't explain that to you. I can't tell you how all that works. All I can tell you is this. The Bible teaches, and we must accept it by faith, that there are three that bear record in heaven. You've got the Father, you've got the Word, you've got the Holy Ghost. These three are three different persons of the Godhead, but at the same time, these three are one person. So you say, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is God the Father? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the Holy Ghost? I believe He's all of them, because He's the Father. Because we have the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's the Trinity. That's what the word Trinity means. Three in one, or three are one. Let me give you another uh, passage to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And for you soul winners, this might be some good notes to jot down, because this may be something that people ask you about uh, as you're out soul winning. But go to the book of John. John chapter number 1. John chapter number 1. John chapter number 1. And look at verse number, uh, well let's just look at verse number 1. John chapter number 1, and verse number 1. The Bible says this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter number 1, and verse number 1. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. Remember, I told you to remember that in, in 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Now notice what it says about the Word, okay? The Word was with God. Okay, so according to that statement, the Word was with God. Does that tell us that the Word and God are two separate people? Yes, it does, right? Because the Word is with God. But notice what it says, And the Word was God. Say, now hold on a second. How is the Word with God, and then the Word is God? You say, well, we believe that because that's the Trinity. You have the Word, who's with God, but the Word, because there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. The Word is God. Look at verse 2. The same, now the same is referring to the Word. The same was in the beginning with God. So in the beginning, at the time of creation, 
God was not alone. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating mankind in that first week? Remember, on the first day, He created certain things, and on the sixth day, He created man in the book of Genesis. And if you haven't read the creation story, you should read it. Genesis chapter 1. And God says, let us make man in our own image. Now when He says, let us make man in our own image, He was not talking to the angels. He was talking to the Word. Because the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look at John chapter 1 and verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Okay, all things were made by who? By the Word. Is that not the subject? He said all things were made by Him. Talking about the Word. And without Him, talking about the Word, was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life. And the life was the, does this sound familiar? The light of all of men. Do you see that? Remember we just saw that light was sprung in darkness? A prophecy of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 5. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, talking about John the Baptist, says he was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He, now look, the he there is referring to the word. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. So the Bible tells us that there was somebody who was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. All of that is a reference back to the word. But as many as received Him, talking about the Word, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, verse 14, and the Word, now notice this, and the Word was made flesh. Do you see that? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the, notice this phrase, only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let me ask you a question. Who is the only begotten of the Father? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. See, Jesus is that Word. And the Bible tells us the Word was made flesh. The Bible tells us the Word was with God. The Word was God. Let me show you another verse. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. If you can find those T books, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, find those T books, go to 1st Timothy chapter number 3. Look at verse number 16. One of these days when you're sitting at home, you got nothing to do, instead of turning on that television, you ought to do a study of all the 316s in the Bible. There are a lot of 316 uh, verses. John 316, 1st Timothy 316. There's a lot of 316 verses. You ought to do that study. It's a very interesting study. One of these days I'll preach a sermon just on the 316 verses of the Bible. But in 1 Timothy 3.16, we have a very uh, interesting verse. Notice what the Bible says. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Bible says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now notice this. God was manifest in the flesh. Now we just read that the Word was made flesh. And we read that the Word was God. And here we're told that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. I'm here to tell you, the Bible is very clear that Jesus is God. 
And people say, well, I still can't believe. Go to Revelation, the last chapter in Revelation. Now keep your finger in 1 Timothy, okay? Because we're going to come back to 2 Timothy. So I want you to be able to get there. So keep your finger there or a bulletin or something. But go to the last chapter in Revelation. And let me show you a verse in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22. And look at verse number 13. Now, you find this phrase all throughout the book of Revelation. I'm just going to show it to you in, in, in the last chapter. Revelation chapter 22 should be fairly easy to find. The last book in the, in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 22 verse 13 says this. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13 the Bible says, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. Jesus says, I am Alpha, the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. He says, I am the beginning and the end. He says, I am the first and the last. And people will argue with us and say, I still can't believe that the, the Son of God is also the Father. They say, the, the, the Son came from the Father. Do you believe that? I'll say, yes. Then how can, how can the Son be the Father? Let me show you another verse. Look at verse 16, same, same chapter, Revelation 22. Look at verse 16. I'm not telling you I understand how all this works. The Bible says that we must approach the Word of God through faith. I'm not telling you I understand how it works. I'm just telling you this is what the Bible says. And as Bible-believing Christians, we must accept it through faith. Revelation 22 says this. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. Now notice what he says. I am the root... And the offspring of David. And the bright and morning star. Now I want you to understand what Jesus just said. Because people say, well how can Jesus be the Son and the Father? But notice what He just said. He said, I am the root and I am the offspring of David. The idea there is of a plant or a tree. He says, if you had a tree and it was the tree of, of the family of David. He said, I am the root of that tree. Meaning, I was before. Before David was, he's saying, I am. He says, David came from me. He said, I created David. He said, I am the root of David. Meaning, I was there and David was created through me. But then he says, I not only am the root of David. He said, I'm also the offspring of David. He said, I, I came from David. You say, well, how does that work? Well, because we know that Jesus came from the lineage that traced him back all the way to King David, that traced him back all the way to Abraham, traced him back all the way to Adam. So here's the point. You say, well, how can he be the son and how can he be the father? Well, how can he be the root and how can he be the fruit? How can it be the first and the last? How can it be the beginning and the end? How can it be the Alpha and the Omega? I'm not telling you I understand it. I'm just telling you the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. And that He's everlasting. He always has been. He always will be. He is the, the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the I Am. He is the self-existing. He was never created. He's always been. That's what the Bible says. You say, well, Pastor, why are you making such a big deal about this? Because at some point, someone's going to knock on your door and say, Hi, I'm coming from the so-and-so, you know, Church of... I don't even know what they call themselves. Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints... Or I come from the Jehovah's Witness Church. You say, well, I don't think you should be naming their names. Well, look, when people are preaching false doctrine, we need to warn you against them. And they're going to come to you and they're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. The Jehovah's Witness Oh, no, Jesus was not God. Jesus was not Jehovah. Jesus was just a good man. Jesus was just a prophet. Jesus was just... And here's what they're going to tell you. Jesus 
was just an angel. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was Michael the archangel. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He said, I never, he said, he was created. He, the Bible says that he was made so much better, not created. He was made so much better than the angels. Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is God. That's what the Bible teaches. You say, well, how can he be God? Because he's part of the Trinity. And the Son is God as much as the Father is God, as much as the Spirit is God. They're three separate persons. They're three separate entities, but they are all one. These three are one. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God. And you've got to understand this. People attack the deity of Jesus Christ today. And it is not the same religion, and it is not the same faith, and it is not the same church. We are not Christians. We're not all Christians when there are some that say that Jesus is not God. That is not Christianity, my friend. And we must be aware of it. You say, do you hate the Mormons? We don't hate the Mormons. We don't hate the Jehovah's Witnesses. We want to see them saved. We want to show them what the Bible says. But we must realize that the Bible, what the Bible teaches, we must allow, we must be students of the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 9. He says, His names are Counselor, Wonderful, Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Now what's interesting is that we saw, first of all, that God's light in the midst of the darkness... And then we saw God's life in the midst of that destruction. He says, you increase your government through destruction. Let me get back to my, to my note there. You increase your government through destruction. But look at verse 7, Isaiah chapter 9, look at verse 7. Notice the government that will come through Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. He says, of the increase of His government. Talking about Jesus. Of the increase of His government and peace. There shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth even forever, the zeal of the host of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Bible says that the government of Jesus will increase not through war and not through battle, but through peace. When Jesus comes, he will set up a government and for the first time in the history of mankind since the since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, for the first time there will be peace on earth. See, today we have presidents and politicians trying to bring peace to this world. But listen to me, you cannot bring peace to this world. There, I don't care what president makes what promise, there will never be peace in the Middle East, there will never be peace in this world until the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. Because He is the Prince of Peace. You need to understand, you cannot have peace... When you reject peace, Jesus is peace. To have peace, you must have Jesus. So when we have a society that says, we want to bring in peace, but we don't want Jesus. We want to bring in peace, but let's put up a wall of separation between state and government uh, in the church. We want to bring in peace, but don't talk to us about Jesus. We don't want Him in our our school system. We don't want to pray to Him. We don't want to learn about Him. Let's just bring in peace minus God. You can never have peace because He is peace. And you will never have peace till you have Christ. But when He shows up, He says to the government and the peace, 
there shall be no end. Now, in verse number 8 of the chapter, the chapter kind of shifts. Because in the first two kind of points, we saw there the mercy of God. Darkness, light was sprung up. Destruction, life was brought in. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But in verse number 8, the chapter kind of shifts, and I, I want to try to explain this to you from the Bible. And uh, evening services are kind of Bible study time, so I, I, I want you to try to understand this. Because a lot of people get, a lot of people don't understand God, and I'm not saying I understand God. We will we will spend all eternity studying and learning about God. But a lot of people don't understand this concept of God, and, and, and for those of you that are taking notes, uh, the the only point, the way I worded the point is this. We learn about God's legitimacy in the midst of His displeasure. And today people will say, I don't believe that there is a God that would punish people. I don't believe that there is a God that would put people in hell. I don't believe that there is a God that would punish people. But the problem is that today there are many people who do not know the God of the Bible. They know the God that Joel Osteen has promoted. They know the God that the false prophets have promoted. They know the God that is just kind of this Santa Claus, and he's kind of this, this old man up in the sky, and he's just kind of senile, and he doesn't really know what's going on, and whatever you want to do, however you want to live, he's just kind of happy, he's just going to, you know, bless you no matter what. But I will submit to you tonight that that is not the God of the Bible. And people who think that God is just this all love, all the time. Now listen to me, God is love, but God is also holy. And God is also just. And there is a balance between the love of God and the justice of God. There is a balance between the love of God and the holiness of God. See, the holiness of God demands a punishment for sin. The love of God took that punishment for our sin. And in the beginning of this chapter, we saw the prophecies of Jesus Christ. Light is sprung up in darkness. Unto us a child was born. But for those who reject that mercy showed through the Christ of God, there is a legitimacy to the displeasure of God. And I just want you to see this. Look at verse 8. The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it had lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him, and join his enemies together, the Syrians and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouths. I want you to make note of this phrase. This phrase is found five times in Scripture. Three times it's found in Isaiah chapter number 9, and uh, a couple of times in the book of Isaiah. But notice this phrase at the end of verse 12. For all this, his anger is not turned away. Do you see that? For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now, I don't have time to do the study with you tonight. I'm going to just assign this for homework, alright? Some of you are not good with homework, I know. But, if you study this phrase out, the stretched out arm of God, or the stretched out hand of God, if you study that phrase throughout the Bible, you will find that that phrase is used whenever God is bringing His judgment upon someone. 
all throughout the book of Exodus, when Moses was bringing the plagues to Pharaoh, the Bible said that either God stretched out his arm, or God commanded Moses to stretch out his arm, or God commanded Aaron to stretch out his arm. All throughout the Bible, you'll see God stretching out his arm, or God stretching out his hand, and it's showing the power and the magnitude of the judgment of God. And here, we don't find a God that says, I'm just going to turn the other cheek, and, and, and look, we had a, Jesus taught that we should turn the other cheek. But we don't find a God that says, I'm just going to turn a blind eye. I'm just going to forget about everything. It, it doesn't matter how. He says, for all this, His anger is not turned away. But His hand is stretched out still. He's saying, while He's destroying them, while He is punishing them, while He's bringing destruction, His anger does not minimize. He says, it's not turned away. And His anger is not satisfied. He said, but His hand is stretched out still. Now he said, well, why? Why does this happen? And I want you to notice what the Bible is saying. Look at verse 8 again. The Lord sent a warning to Jacob, and it had lighted upon Israel. And all people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say, notice the problem. Number one, the pride and stoutness of heart. Do you see that? The pride and stoutness of heart. These people were proud. God was dealing with the people of Israel because of their sin. And their response to His dealing with them was pride and stoutness of heart. Now notice what they did in verse 10. Okay, God is destroying them. God is punishing them. Now notice what happens, verse 10. The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Okay, a brick is a block molded of moist clay hardened by heat. The way that bricks are made is you basically take mud and, and, and harden it. And today bricks are a little more refined than that. But especially during the time uh, of the writing here, they would basically take like a, a wet dirt and they would mold it into a block and they would set it out in the sun or put it into an oven and heat it till it became strong. Now the brick would become pretty strong. But when they built their houses of bricks, and when they built their cities of bricks, and God said, I'm not happy, and I'm not satisfied, and I'm going to bring destruction, and God would destroy the houses of bricks, the people would not respond with repentance. They would not respond with God. We need to get right, and we need to get the sin out of our lives, and we need to forsake the idols, and we need to go back to a holy God. The people responded in this way. They said, God, you destroyed our bricks. That's fine. We'll just rebuild with hewn stones. Now here, what's, what's a hewn stone? A hewn stone is a, a, a basically a stone that was cut to be able to be used in a building. A stone is much stronger than a brick. And when God destroyed their bricks, they said, we'll just rebuild with hewn stone. Now notice... Verse 10, the bricks are falling down and we will build with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Go, go to 1 Kings chapter 10, just real quickly. 1 Kings chapter 10. In uh, your Old Testament, you got 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 10, let me show you a verse real quickly. 1 Kings chapter number 10. And look at verse number... 27, 1 Kings chapter 10, 
and verse 27. In 1 Kings 10, 27, we're reading about, remember when Solomon became king of Israel and how everything got great and their economy was great, things were going well. Here's a description of what's going on during Solomon's reign. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 27, the Bible says, And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. They're, they're, they're using these analogies to show how the economy was so great. They said silver was just like stones that you'd find on the street. There was so much silver in the land, it was like stones. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. He's saying that the wealth was so great that the cedar trees, which were uh, strong and expensive, and, and, and there wasn't much of them, they were very expensive, the cedar trees became like the sycamore trees, which were just kind of trees that grew out throughout the valley there in abundance. Okay? The idea is, if you go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, they said, you'll break down our bricks, we'll rebuild with you in stone. They said, you break down our sycamores, and we'll cut them, and you cut down our sycamores, but we will change them to cedars. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, God, you destroyed what we have, but we're just going to rebuild it stronger, God. You want to get rid of our bricks? Fine, we'll build them in hewn stone. You want to get rid of our sycamores? Fine, we'll bring in cedars. We'll rebuild and we'll build stronger so that the next time you cannot destroy us, God. Now, does that sound like a prideful attitude? Look at verse 11. Therefore, the Lord shall... God says, okay. God says, I, I destroyed your brick. Tap your, your brick houses and that didn't get your attention. You just rebuild with hewn stone. And I destroyed your sycamores and, and that didn't get your attention. You just rebuild with cedars. He says, therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and join his enemies together. God says, I'm going to bring in more enemies than I brought in the last time. He says, you want to put up a bigger fight? He says, God says, I'll put up a bigger fight. Look at verse 12. The Syrians before. He says, I'm going to bring in the Syrians to attack you from the front and the Philistines from behind. They shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. It's interesting what's happening in this chapter. And I'm going to bring this to a point, but I want you to see it. Look at verse 13. God is punishing the people, but they are not reacting in repentance. They are not reacting in humility. They are reacting in pride and stoutness. They are fighting God. They're saying, fine God, we'll just rebuild stronger. Now notice, notice verse 13. For the people turneth not unto Him that smiteth them. God says, I'm smiting them, but they won't turn to me. Neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. The ancient and honorable, He is the head. And the prophet, I don't have time to preach this, but I just want you to see it. The prophet that teaches lies, He is the tail. Notice, notice where God puts a prophet that will not preach the truth. He says the prophet that preaches lies, He is the tail. And the Bible says there's coming a day when people will find preachers with itching ears who will lie to them and give them fables. You need to understand that God does not think much of a preacher that will not preach the truth. And by the way, let me, let me say this to, to our church people, and, and you need to understand this, because I think we have the, a wrong mentality when it comes to, you know, we're fundamental Baptists, and they're the liberals, and they're this, and they're that, and I think sometimes we kind of get a bad attitude. Let me, let me explain something. What's wrong with the liberal preacher is not that he preaches in love. It's not that, you know, we don't like the liberal because he just preaches in love and he just loves people. That's not the problem with the liberal preacher. There's nothing wrong with speaking in love. The Bible says to speak the truth in love. The, what we, the problem that we have with the liberal preacher is not that he speaks in love. It's that he won't speak the truth. You understand that? You say, I, 
can't stand that level preacher. Why? Because he's just always so nice. That's not the problem. The problem is not that he speaks in love. It's that he won't speak truth. And by the way, being a jerk doesn't make you a fundamentalist. You say, well, Pastor Manny is a jerk. You know, you should get up there and just scream and yell at all these people and all these people up front. You should just, you know, uh, you know, just yell at them and be rude and be a jerk. Look, being a jerk doesn't make you fundamental. Preaching the truth makes you fundamental. And you can speak the truth in love. And you can speak lies in love. You understand that? We're not fundamental Baptists because we're jerks. We ought to be fundamental Baptists because we love the Word of God. Because we love the truth of the Word of God. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 16. For the leaders of this people caused them to err. And they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fathers and widows. For everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. Notice, they won't turn to God, they won't turn to God. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burneth as the fire, it shall devour the briars and thorns, and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand. Now understand how grievously God is bringing judgment on these people. Notice what's happening. He shall snatch on the right hand, verse 20, and be hungry. He shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Do you see what's going on here? See how bad, how horrible God is bringing these people low to the point. We're not talking about cannibalism here. They're not eating, they're not killing their neighbor and eating their neighbor. They're eating their own flesh. But yet they won't turn back to God. Verse 21. Manasseh, Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh. And they together shall be against Judah. And notice, to bring the whole idea to the end, he says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. You say, Pastor Mess, what, what is the point you're trying to make? Go to Revelation chapter 9. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. You say, why can God, how can a just God punish sinners? Punishment does not bring Repentance. Punishment does not bring repentance. You say, people, need, people have the wrong doctrine, they have the wrong philosophy, they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They must repent of their dead works and turn unto God. They must repent of their unbelief and they must turn unto God. Punishment does not bring the change required for an individual to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to go from unbelief to belief. Preaching the gospel brings that. But when the gospel has been preached... People who reject the gospel, who reject the light, who reject the sun, when they are punished, notice they, they just harden themselves. Say, you destroyed our brick, we'll rebuild in hewn stone. You, rebu- you, you, you destroyed our sycamores, we'll rebuild in cedars. They say, we will not turn back to God. I don't care if I'm eating my own flesh because I'm so hungry. I will not turn back to God. And you find this concept throughout the Bible. Let me give you another example. Revelation chapter 9. Look at verse 17. In Revelation chapter 9, the context is that God is pouring out His wrath upon the earth. The tribulation has happened. The rapture of the church has happened. And God is now pouring out His wrath on the earth. And notice how the people respond. Revelation chapter 9. 
And verse 17 says this, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, Revelation 9.17, having breastplate of fire, and of jacinth, and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lion, and out of their mouth issued fire and smoke and brimstone. This is God bringing judgment upon this world. I mean, He's bringing these creatures... Um, their heads are of lines, their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed. By the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tail. For in their, t- in their tails were like unto serpents and had heads. And with them they do hurt. I mean these are creatures that are meant to hurt people, to kill people. God is pouring His wrath upon the earth. And the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues. Now you would think that the rest of the verse would say that they repented. That they cried out for mercy. That they said, God be merciful to us. But notice what it says. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. That they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stones and of wood, which neither can see, nor hear, nor what. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Now God is pouring out His wrath upon planet earth, and He's bringing these beasts and these animals to destroy people, and yet the Bible says they don't repent. They don't get right. They don't cry out for mercy. They just say, I'll rebuild with you in stone. I'm not going to repent of the things I've done. Look at Revelation 16. Let me give you another example. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 8. Revelation 16 and verse 8, the Bible says, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God. Notice, God pours out his wrath, and how do they respond? Do they respond with humbleness? Do they respond with uh, trying to get right with God? Do they respond by calling upon the name of the Lord? No, they blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. These people are in so much pain. They're gnawing their tongues for pain. Are they ready to get right? Are they ready to humble themselves? Are they ready to go before a holy God and say, God, be merciful to me a sinner. Verse 11, and blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sorrows and repented not of their deeds. Say, how is God justified in punishing sinners in hell for eternity? Here's how God is justified by punishing sinners in hell for eternity. Because when sinners go to hell for eternity, while they're punished, they are still what got them there. Remember the rich man in Luke 16? Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Remember he lifted up his eyes in torment? And he said, this is, a, he said I don't, this is a horrible place. He said, can somebody go tell my brothers and warn my brothers? I, I don't want them to come here. But did you notice what he didn't say? He didn't say, I repent. He didn't say, I believe. He didn't say, no, okay, I, I believe in Jesus, please save me. He didn't say any of that. He just said, hey, this is a horrible place. Can you keep my brothers from coming here? Because see, the reason that people go to hell is because they're sinners. 
And when they are in the midst of the punishment of God, they don't turn to God because punishment does not produce repentance. Preaching does. God is just in punishing sinners in hell because they still are what they were when they got there. See, to not go to hell, you must become a new creature. Justification is not just as if I had never sinned. Justification is just as if I had never been a sinner. When I became a new creature, see... The people of God react to the chastisement of God. Habakkuk reacted to the chastisement of God by saying, God, in wrath, remember mercy. Believers, when they are punished by God, will call out in repentance to that God. But unbelievers will not. They'll just harden their hearts like Pharaoh. They'll just get madder. They'll chew up their arms and they'll gnaw their tongues. And they'll say, we will just rebuild. He destroyed our sycamore trees and we will rebuild them to cedar trees. And they will not turn back to God. That's why God is justified in punishing them for eternity. Because for eternity, they are proud against God. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And let us be mindful of this holy God. There are things that God will deal with by His Spirit in your life, things that you are doing that you know are not pleasing to God. And let us be mindful that though God is love, He is also holy. And though God is grace, He also is just. And God is not just as God, He just kind of says, okay, whatever. There is a side of God that says, I will bring you to the place where you are eating your own arm. And for all this, His anger is not turned away. But his hand is stretched out still. There is a God that will punish you, that will punish an individual, and have no mercy. You say, well, how can God have no mercy? Because God already gave us his mercy. He already gave us his life. He already gave us... Remember, we started the chapter with, unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is given. He already gave us his mercy. And when people reject that, all that's left is a just God who punishes sin. You say, well, how? what does that have to do with us? What kind of goes with the sermon this morning? Let us go and reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and let us preach to them that they may repent of their unbelief before they get to a place in their life where they cannot. Because punishment does not bring repentance. Preaching does. Let's bow our heads. Dear my Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for our church. I understand that the sermon tonight may have been a little different. And the concept may have been a little difficult for us to grasp. I don't know. But Lord, help us to remember that you are a loving and merciful God. And that loving and merciful God set down His Son to take the ransom, to be the ransom, and take the punishment for our sins. But when someone rejects that light and rejects that sun, when someone rejects the mercy and the love of God, there is a side of God that is holy and just, and His anger will not be turned away, and His arm will be stretched out still. Help us to always remember that when sinners are in the hands of an angry God, there is no mercy for them without Jesus Christ. There is no peace for them without the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be a people that would present the gospel 
that mankind might not ever meet that God. We love you, Lord, in your precious name I pray. Amen.